Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Here we are at part three of our Bruce Springsteen series, 20th Century Boss, where we are going through one of the great discographies in rock history. The albums of Bruce Springsteen released in the late 20th century. We're going from Greetings from Asbury Park New Jersey, released in 1973, up through The Ghost of Tom Joad in 1995. If you tuned in last week, we did our first two episodes. We did Greetings, and we did The Wild, The Innocent, The E Street Shuffle with Brian Fallon, and then we did Born to Run with Jeff Rosenstock. Uh, That was a great way to start the series. And here we are. We're getting into the meat, the big-time records, the albums that are possibly the most beloved in the man's history. We'll be talking about this this week and I guess in the weeks ahead. Uh, A lot of good albums to get to. This week, it's part three, and we're going to be talking about Darkness on the Edge of Town. And man, is there a better album title than Darkness on the Edge of Town? You know, this is probably my favorite Bruce Springsteen record. I would say that any album from Born to Run to Tunnel of Love is in the running for that distinction. And there have been times in my life where I have picked one of those albums as my favorite. But I find that I always go back to darkness. And maybe it's just because I love saying darkness on the edge of town. Because you know, there's no way an album called darkness on the edge of town is going to suck. It just has such a weight. It has such a profound sound to it. If there was a movie called Darkness on the Edge of Town, you would want to see that movie. You would know that that'd be a masterpiece. And there's a similar allure to this album. It was released on June 2nd, 1978. And it wasn't a big hit out of the gate, especially compared to Born to Run. Uh, As hard as it might be to believe now, knowing what we know about the record, there weren't really any hit songs off of this record. Now, of course, there are a lot of great tracks that became uh, standards in Bruce's live show. You have Badlands, of course, Adam Raised the Cane, Racing in the Streets, Prove It All Night, and the great title track. But I think ultimately, this is an album uh, that is greater than the sum of its parts. So it makes sense in a way that it took a while for people to catch up to this record, that it had to be a, a cult favorite in a way before it became what seems to be, at least among hardcore Bruce Springsteen fans, I feel like this is the album that people go back to. Kind of like me at the beginning of this episode where I said this was my favorite record, even though I love a lot of other Bruce Springsteen records. I feel like when you get down to brass tacks, it always comes back to darkness on the edge of town. And of course, that is due to all the great songs on the record and and how great the E Street Band sounds on this record. And the great production, how spare it is, and how timeless it is. But I also think you have to talk about the iconography of this record, uh, because I think this is an important and underrated part of Bruce Springsteen's music. 
Bruce, especially in his prime, was really adept at packaging his songs in such a way that it instantly created a mood or a feeling in the listener that prepared you to hear the record and to understand the themes that Bruce was going to be getting into uh, in this new music. Just think about the cover of Nebraska, for instance. You know, you have the black and white photo. You have the red print against the black cover. It looks stark and foreboding and, above all, serious. You know going into this album that this is going to be not all fun and games, you know? And I think that's also true of Darkness. Just by looking at the record and, again, hearing that great album title, it prepares you for what Bruce is going to be doing on this record. You know, Darkness on the Edge of Town. It's just so evocative. <laughs> you know, again, to me, it sounds like a movie title. It brings to mind a lot of the great films of the 70s. Uh, films like Taxi Driver and Five Easy Pieces, The Conversation, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. You know, some of my favorite films of the era. You know, they're all about outsiders who are ground up and spat out by society. You know, that was a big theme of 70s cinema. And to me, Darkness on the, on the Edge of Town, it's Bruce's version of those movies. And you can see the songs as much as you can hear them, of course, because of uh, the lyricism that Bruce Springsteen has. And on this record in particular, he was really paring down his language uh, from, you know, even from Born to Run. You know, Born to Run was paring down the language of the first two records, which were very wordy and grandiose. He was paring it down in Born to Run, but Darkness on the Edge of Town is even starker in its language. And the way that he paints scenes on this record is very cinematic. But again, it begins with the way he presents it before you even hear the record. You know, look at the album cover, you know, shot by Frank Stefanko. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Anyway, it's shot at his home in Haddonfield, New Jersey. And you see Bruce Springsteen staring into the camera. And he has this expression on his face. It's not sadness or anger. He looks numb. He looks lost. He looks like he's dead inside. And you know, Bruce famously, when he saw that photo of himself, he said, that's the guy that my songs are about. That's the person that is inhabiting the soul of this record. And I think it's interesting that he was talking about himself in, in the third person there. You know, that in a way that the guy on the cover, it was Bruce, but in a way, Bruce was playing a character on the cover. Because I think he was very aware of wanting to create a very singular mood and explore sort of this idea of isolation, you know, uh, much like those movies that I just talked about, the idea of, of, of not fitting in and uh, not feeling part of a community and, and what that does to a person's soul. It's interesting how Bruce would address that issue on subsequent records. Certainly The River is a record about community, and I think it approaches it from a less sort of a nihilistic point of view than it does on darkness. But, you know, the records I think that tend to strike the deepest chord with people are the records that uh, address loneliness. Because I think a lot of times when people listen to music, they're lonely and they're looking for something that will understand them. I think if there's a reason why darkness has struck a chord with so many Bruce Springsteen fans, that would be my theory. You know, that there's something that he was able to capture on this record, similar to what Martin Scorsese does in Taxi Driver or the Jack Nicholson character in Five Easy Pieces. You know, th there's something about the alienation of the, of the character at the center of these songs 
that uh, is relatable. And if you feel a kinship with that character, it makes you feel a little less alone when you listen to this record. I had a lot of fun exploring Darkness on the Edge of Town with another big fan of the, uh, of the album, and that would be Julian Baker, a very exciting 22-year-old singer-songwriter from Memphis. She put out her second album, Turn Out the Lights, in 2017, and it was one of my favorite albums of that year. Uh, I would actually recommend, after you listen to this episode, going back and hearing the episode I did with Julian, where we talk about that record uh, that came out last fall. Um, I knew from that conversation that Julian was a very smart, articulate person, uh, great at talking about art, talking about her own songwriting, and I had a feeling that she would be great talking about Bruce Springsteen's art and his songwriting, knowing how much she loves Darkness on the Edge of Town. And fortunately, I was not disappointed. Julian was awesome. We had a great conversation. We got into it talking about darkness. So without further ado, here is me and Julian Baker talking about darkness on the edge of town. (laughs) So when I asked you if you would do this, and by the way, thank you for doing it. I really appreciate it. Um, Oh, my pleasure. You sent a list of of five records, sort of like in order of preference of what you'd want to talk about. And darkness (laughs) was at the top of the list. Which leads me—it leads me to believe that Darkness is either your favorite record or it's the record that you have the most to say about, uh, as far as Bruce Springsteen goes. Mm-hmm. So, which is it? I mean, is it your favorite, and if so, why? I think it is my favorite. It's my favorite record. Like I have other Bruce Springsteen songs that are higher. Like, for instance, I would like you know. Jungle Land more than Factory off this record. But as a cohesive body of work, I think I have the most interest in Darkness on the Edge of Town. Um, and I, I don't know why. I Probably because that is one of the first ones that I go really deep into the lyrical content of. It was like Born, uh, not Born in the USA, um, Born to Run this one, and then later, Nebraska and Born in the USA. So, like, and also, Darkness on the Edge of Town and Born to Run seem like a package deal or, like, cousins. You know, they're of the same cloth, just executed in a different way. But I like this one. It's got more, like, grit and um, just these very intriguing production choices. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a good way to put it, the package deal. It's almost like you could say Born to Run is like Star Wars and Darkness is Empire Strikes Back. It's like the darker sequel. Yep. It has It's a continuation of the story, but it definitely, like you said, it feels grittier, it's harder, um, a little more uncompromising maybe than Born to Run, which is a great record, but there's obviously sort of like an element of fantasy almost to that album, and this one kind of hits with more of like a reality-type feel to it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, and I think also sonically, I have to be, sorry, I'm going to interrupt that sentence to interject a disclaimer of my own, which is that I'm aware that my relationship to Bruce Springsteen is very much shaded by my age. And somebody who was alive in the 70s and experienced these records coming out sequentially and, and all the time elapsed between them and, and was more familiar with Bruce Springsteen as like a public persona during that time, I think 
probably has a little bit more realistic of a view of of how the records are situated in their social context. But right. for me, it was the 2000, it was 2010 before I had really listened to a Bruce Springsteen record in a discerning way. And then, of course, I just like dove back into history and started voraciously consuming all of his music. But it's like an accordion file, like all of that information is compressed into one thing. But what I find so interesting about Starting from the Other Town and Born to Run is that from everything I've like read and interviews and seen, it, like they came out like back to back. And I always think of like Bruce Springsteen as like a formative eighties artist, like Born to Run and Tunnel of Love coming out like eighty two, eighty five, I think. But then here's these two records that came out in the seventies that to me seem like they're really incorporating a lot of elements of things like sonic elements from that time, but super classic. You know, like Jungle Land is this meandering, almost rock opera, like, masterwork that's eight minutes long with, you know, key change and minute and a half long saxophone solo and some of the best poetry I've ever read. Yeah. Um, and it's very of its time. But then Darkness on the Edge of Town is so experimental that it's difficult for me to place it. You know, when I hear a Rush record, I know what era it's from immediately. <laughs> right. But when I heard Darkness on the Edge of Town, I had no sense of how to locate it chronically, like, or chronologically, rather. Right. Chronically. Right. My, like, timeline. Well, and I think, too, that, you know, I want to go back to something you said earlier, because I think it was a really astute point, talking about your age and how your age has impacted how you view these records and how it may be different from how people felt at the time. And, you know, when Darkness on the Edge of Town came out, it wasn't a big hit and there weren't any hit singles off of it. And I think there was a feeling maybe that it was a letdown from Born to Run, which was, you know, Bruce's big breakthrough record. And over time, Darkness has become this record that a lot of people love and look at as one of his best albums. And I feel like among subsequent generations, people that weren't alive at the time or were very young, like I I was one year old when this record came out, so I didn't hear it until, mm-hmm. you know, it had been out for 15 years or something. Like that's when I discovered this record. Um, in a way, this record was more accessible to me because it felt more contemporary. And maybe this gets to what you were just mm-hmm. saying about how it doesn't really tie in necessarily to the late 70s. Like, you, I think with some people, when they first get into Bruce Springsteen, it can be a little difficult because of the bombastic elements of some of his music, you know, and you have the saxophone and you have all of these sorts of things that um, if you grew up listening to punk or alternative music, mm-hmm. it can be a little alienating. But Darkness was this record that, yeah, I mean, I think Bruce at the time was was sort of consciously influenced by the punk bands that were emerging at the time. He was a big fan of The Clash, and he loved the Ramones. And Darkness isn't a punk record, but it has the leanness of those records and the sort of straightforward 
power. There's not a lot of sort of extraneous stuff on this record in a way that there is with Born to Run. Born to Run is a very grandiose record, kitchen sink production, you know, just the full nine yards. And this one, pretty stripped down to just the band. And even lyrically, it's more stripped down. So, like, I'm wondering, because I know for you, I mean, you come from a punk background. You played in punk bands when you were growing up. And I'm wondering if that was true for you as well, if it was maybe more accessible in a way because of that. I don't think... So, what's crazy about the way that I came to love Bruce Springsteen is that I could not for some reason, latch on to any of his songs as a child um, for whatever reason. You know, maybe it was because they were so wild and in structure and mostly what I was hearing was stuff off of Born to Run or just, like, a single Born in the USA. Right. And it was until, like, I was in a creative writing class and heard lyrics off of Born to Run read aloud as poetry without being told that it was Bruce Springsteen. And it was downright the most beautiful poem I had ever heard. And it ended up being Jungle Land. So then I went and just read the lyrics to the record Born to Run and Darkness on the Edge of Town in Nebraska like it was a zine, and then listened to the record. Mm. Because I just wanted to know the words. And that's why all of the production choices, all of the things that make Darkness on the Edge of Town so interesting are so intimately related to the lyrics. Like, Born to Run has a whole bunch of great pop hooks on it, and but they don't end up sacrificing any of the meaningful lyrical content, right? Like, they're still very real, very honest, and uh, true images of life being portrayed in those songs. But I think Darkness on the Edge of Town gets even grittier and darker, and it seems like... If I could compare it to a contemporary record, it really captures the sort of middle-class descent and ennui and, like, boredom and um, frustration of a record like Control by Page of the Lion or um, a band like Drug Church, I feel like, is doing the same thing that Springsteen was doing 40 years ago, like painting these images of existence at a very specific time and the kind of just average American person. And that's what makes it so beautiful and also so heartbreaking. That's what all of these songs are about, you know, like, I don't know. I'm sorry. I intended to answer your previous question with that, and then I moved so far away from it. I'm so sorry. I mean, 
I, I wanted to walk through the record with you a little bit, but you know, just looking at the record overall, you know, I like I know that you've covered Badlands and you've talked about that song Badlands, which is of course the first track on the record, and you've talked about how one of the things you love about that song is the sort of how unashamed he sounds at, at at being alive. You know, that no matter how tough life gets, that there's a sort of resilience in that song that comes through really loud and clear. And I think it also comes through in the way that you sang it as well. Um, but I think part of the power of this record is the ambiguity of it. Because like, I, I've been revisiting this record in the last couple of days, getting ready to talk to you about it. And I realized that there's a lot of songs on the album where it's not really clear how you're supposed to feel at the end of the song. That there are elements of hope in a lot of the songs, but there's also elements of of true despair. Like, I think of the last song on the record, Darkness on the Edge of Town, which is my favorite song on the record. And you listen to that song. At the end of the song, the guy at, in that song, he's you know, he's on the hill. He's lost everything he's that he has in his life. You know, he's lost his wife. He's lost his all of his money. And uh, he still has this resilience that you hear throughout the record that he's not going to give up. He's, you know, like, I'll be on that hill because I can't stop. Which mm. could be looked at as a hopeful sentiment, but there's also a feeling that he's also kind of walking towards oblivion in that song. You know, that it's like, I'm alone, I, you know, and I know I'm always going to be sort of on the outside. You know, like I'm past the point maybe where I'm going to have another wife or another family. And I'm not going to give up, but I might be going in a bad direction. I'm just wondering, like, how you feel. Like, do you feel like there's hope in this record? Or does the hope went out or the despair went out, I guess, when you listen to it? There's so much. I think the fact that you can't always tell is what makes it so beautiful, right? It's like the schism of thought in every person that exists within society, the feeling of being unfulfilled in your present circumstance. And so the record starts off with Badlands and ends with Darkness on the Edge Town, and I love how it bookended like that, because in Badlands, he makes this, you know, bombastic declaration that he's going to go out and find one single face that isn't looking through him and spit in the face of, you know, Badlands and the society that um, makes him feel like, you know, he's just working towards a goal of, like, accruing nothing, you know, in that little beautiful, like, quatrain, uh, all men want to be rich, rich men want to be king, and king is satisfied till he rules everything, just kind of shows the endless cycle of consumption where nothing is really sating the need or the desire of, of people who try to fill the gap of fulfillment with possessions or, or status or, or a job or a family or a picket fence. Then it's almost as if the, at the end when he talks about hanging out under a highway bridge and losing his wife, he even talks about his wife or, you know, ostensibly his former wife, um, you know, living in a suburb and having nice things and being normal. And because he is unable to knuckle under to the delusion of normalcy, he can never tolerate it and can never 
exist in that world with her or with society. But then is it bravery or is it a little bit of madness that, like, you know, causes him to go out on his own and, and be an outcast? Like, he knows that he'll never be able to tolerate an average life within the confines of like a social prison and like I mean the only reason why I'm saying these things about the main character of the record is because you have you know so much more evidence for that in the rest of the tracks like um, oh my gosh it's not it's not called the working life but I always want to call it the working life factory raisin in the street raisin in the street is all about just like doing crazy things and like raising hot rods because what else is there to do you know, where he talks about, like, some people just go home and they let life kill them and they become one with their armchair and it's just, like, the hamster wheel between their job and their home and their job and their home. And here I am doing something that's dangerous and unusual and um, maybe a little bit criminal because it provides me with some sort of feeling or intense emotion in this, trapped, like, cycle of monotony. So you really have an ultimatum between two not ideal things. And I guess the listener is forced either to sympathize with him or say it's, like, it's either destructive or noble, you know, or maybe it's somewhere in between and you don't know. But then you see elements of yourself in the main character, and that the way that it indicts the listener is so moving to me. Well, the, the way you talk like, about racing in the street, like it, it makes it sound, it's really fascinating to hear you talk about it because it's, it, it sounds more hopeful in a way or more noble. Like the, the guys in that song sound more noble than it is when I listen to it because I hear it as like a song about these guys who are still trying to pretend that they're 17 when they're probably like 27, mm. 28 and like they're living in the past. And there's like, there's that, there's a great part at the end, like where he goes home and he sees his girlfriend or his wife and he talks about the wrinkles oh, around her God. eyes, you know, it, which I think is a great yeah. way to suggest that. Oh yeah. These, cause at the beginning of the song, you know, it, there's a lot of swagger in it. And, uh, there's this idea that they're, you know, that they're the kings of the strip and you don't really know much about them. And then that just that little detail about the wrinkles around her eyes, it just tells you like, oh, wait, these guys are not teenagers or they're not in their early 20s. Like they should be having more than this. And it's sort of like that story about like the, the, uh, you know, the, the person who looks really cool, like the, the cool older person that you see when you're a kid and you're like, wow, that guy mm-hmm. has it together. But then what you don't know when you're younger is that that guy goes home and he probably lives with his mother or he probably works a dead end job or, you know, he doesn't have anything else in his life cause he's kind of stuck in the past. Um, but it'd be that, again, this kind of speaks to the ambiguity in the songs though, that you can hear it in a way as, well, they're trying to find a way kind of outside the structures of society and mm-hmm. find danger and find excitement outside of sort of like the nine to five work day. So that's kind of the, the bright side of that song, but then there's the dark side where they're just delusional, you know, and like they, they're not oh, going yeah, anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. 
But then you have to you have to ask like, so who's at fault there? Like the because I guess it starts. Let's see. After Badlands is like Adam raised the cane, and then you get to like Candy's room, right. and this relationship is born. And this is the kind of dichotomy that I think you see in a whole bunch of other Springsteen love narratives, like uh, the title track off of the river. Um, it's just this sad, it, it's the same kind of sad surrender as racing in the street where it's two young kids fall in love, like in the river, they have a shotgun wedding or whatever, or they go down to city hall and get married because she gets pregnant. And then they continue going down to the reservoir to relive their childhood dreams and, or their childhood, um, like escapades and try to hang on the same kind of like excitement that was there before but now they've grown up and they have responsibilities and they're weathered people and so in racing in the streets who is at fault is it this woman who in the end you know like as we've talked about ends up buying in to the house in the suburbs thing that our main character cannot should he grow up or is it just sad that like he feels trapped within the cycle of working towards nothing, you know, at like a car garage or at a factory or the like many blue collar locales that are described in this record. But yeah, it's crazy. Hey guys, we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. I just want to tell you about something I'm really excited about, which is the release of my new book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It comes on May 8th, and it's available wherever you like to buy books. Twilight of the Gods is a book about rock stars and how they all seem to be retiring or even dying right now. If you're like me, you grew up listening to Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Beatles, and The Stones, even though it had been years, even decades, since those groups were in their primes or even still together. How has this music endured for so long and appealed to new generations of fans? What is the attraction of classic rock culture, and what impact did it have on the world? And what will happen to that music now that so many stars are exiting the stage permanently? I'll attempt to answer all those questions in this book, along with offering in-depth analysis of my favorite Bob Seger songs, my least favorite Neil Young albums, and the scariest David Bowie cocaine binges of the 1970s. Also, for you Springsteen fans, there's a lot of stuff about Bruce in the book, too. So please check out my book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, when it comes out May 8th. Okay, let's get back to the episode. You brought up Candy's Room, and this also, I guess, applies to Racing in the Street, because you were talking about the, the wife or the girlfriend character and that, and also in Darkness on the Edge of Town, I guess, the way that Bruce Springsteen writes about women at this time in his career, because you know he was a young man, I think he was like... 28, 29 or so when this album was made and he hadn't been married yet. And I, I'm not even sure if he had, if he had had like a lot of serious relationships uh, with women at that point. And you could definitely see how his writing evolved in that regard as he got older and he had a family. And I think his ability to write women maybe as more fully fledged characters evolved as he got older. But I mean, I was talking about this because I, I, I did an episode I recorded the episode about the river before talking to you and the person I talked to in that episode brought up how on the, on the river, he uses the phrase little girl a lot in songs, you know, referring to the woman as a little girl. 
And Candy's room kind of has a little bit of that element as well. I'm just wondering if that, if that's something that has struck you, uh, you know, if you've noticed that. I, in a way, you could maybe say that does, that hasn't aged as well. That aspect of his songs has it ever bothered you? Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? Oh man, there's you know, I, there are plenty of small lyrical like affectations that Springsteen uses, especially uh, when speaking about women. Like um, one of the really popular songs about Born in the USA that I love, "I'm on Fire." What? Why is he asking if that woman's daddy is home? <laughs> like that's like such. I mean, okay, so that was a superficial kind of comedic joke, but. When I heard that, I started to think, is this person playing a character? I think for sure on Born in the USA and Darkness on the Edge of Town, it's, you know, Springsteen says that he's trying to uh, construct, like, a tone poem, but does that make it any less, like, weird how women are characterized if we think about it as being like just how like Bruce Springsteen himself as an artist and a person thinks of women or is it also kind of tied in with like what you said before about raping the street is someone who is chasing adolescent dreams and, and cheap thrills of, of hot rods after work the way a 17 year old would is that person unable to have an emotional intelligence beyond what a 17-year-old would have. Right. You know? Yeah. Like, and there's also this weird, like, every time I, I think that uh, women come up in, in Springsteen narratives, it's kind of a, there's a sadness, like, even in falling in love, like, I'm trying to find this one lyric. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, the lyric on Jungle Land, uh, in a bedroom locked, uh, in whispers of soft refusal, then surrender, is like this awfully vivid depiction of loneliness and being lonely with another person and then just clinging to a person who is near you because they afford you some solace and that you're experiencing misery together. It's like in the river and it's in jungle land and it's in Candy's room. And later in, uh, what prove it all night where he's looking at this woman and saying, you deserve more than this. And in a way saying like, we all deserve more than this, but this is what we got. Right. You know, like this middle class existence is what we have. You're what I have. The reason why it's you and me against the world, baby, is not because we're cosmically designed for each other, but because we live in the same town and we understand each other's heartache. And whether, like, if we don't have the same emotional lexicon, at least we have the shared experience and, uh, ability to understand each other's histories. Right. Like, that's a very, to me, like, quotidian small town thing. Right. You know? Well, I think there's uh, also an element... Yeah, and kind of, you know, just 
and I think I mean that that was all awesome. That's, I mean that was what you just said was was basically like my counter argument to that. Like where if someone the, the counter argument to the suggestion that he's just being like a sexist or you know whatever or sort of like a caveman with with women, I I think kind of building what you were saying, the sort of emotional intelligence of someone who is either 17 or still is sort of living in that world or wanting to live in that world. I think that there was an element to to Springsteen in his characters. And I think also for him where I think Bruce Springsteen probably knew more about records in a way than he did about people or that he viewed existence through the spectrum of like rock and roll. And that in a way, like talking about like little girls, like that's like the language of like so many like garage rock songs from the sixties that I'm sure that oh, yeah. loved. And I think there is, I think especially on this record, more so than on Born to Run. I think Born to Run is maybe more of like a straight up tribute to that uh th- that sort of rock and roll mythology. And on Darkness, I think he's starting to realize that there's a gap between you know, the rock mythology that he loves and that he's drawing from in, in real life and that I think he, you're meant to hear that as the listener, that uh, the characters in these songs are clinging to an idea, like a, a romanticism that they're being uh, disabused of. It's like you can't race in the streets anymore. You can't only live by yourself. You know, I mean, because I, I feel like in a lot of Springsteen's records, if you're looking for a common thread, there's this uh, the sort of the theme of community finding people that you can be with, uh, be a part of to, uh, not only make the world better, but to save yourself. And like, I know with darkness, he's described this as his samurai record, you know, cause it was a record where he went deep into himself and all the characters in these songs aren't able to assimilate or aren't able to find a community. I mean, you can also say that about Nebraska as well. That's a very sort of samurai record. Whereas like the river and certainly born in the USA, it's about trying to be a part of something and the the necessity of that. Uh, whereas I think on this record, it's about what happens when that breaks down or when you can't make a connection with other people. Um, yeah. Or when just the framework of society fails you. Right. Like, I was, I was trying to think about the, all the three lines of this record, and I feel like I have a... Uh, propensity to always put things in like socioeconomic or sociopolitical terms but you know when you start listening to Bruce Springsteen listen to me I have no idea what a person does when they start listening to Bruce Springsteen he's like the most listened to artist of all time I don't know but so I guess I always envision Bruce Springsteen as just a rock and roll guy you know and uh, it was immediately apparent, of course, after I started reading his lyrics and his poetry, that that's not what's going on. Like, this is, in many ways, just a satire of, like you say, that genre and how the illusions constructed by the sort of easy rock and roll culture of just living fast and raising hot rods and going to the bar are like um, only the superficial level of something under which is lurking uh, a dark emptiness, you know? And 
a feeling of settling for that. Uh, so like a song like Adam Raised a Cane, which to me was always so weird. It was a weird Springsteen song. It doesn't sound like other Springsteen songs. But I went back and listened to it today. And first of all, it's crazy because I, obviously that's a biblical reference. I didn't realize how many other biblical references or just, you know, kind of religious imagery crops up throughout the record, but not in a religious way, almost in a way that, you know, it's just a device to show you another thing with which the narrator has become disillusioned. So in Adam Raised the Cain, there's like this part where it talks about the sins. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to Google it because I'm a crazy person. <laughs> um, oh, okay, here it is. In the Bible, Cain flew Abel. In East of Eden, he was cast. You're born into this life paying for the sins of somebody else's past. Uh, Daddy worked his whole life for nothing but pain, and now he walks these empty rooms looking for some something to blame. You inherit the sins, you inherit the flames. And it's just like, what an image of like Midwestern progeny where like, or I mean, I guess I think Midwestern or Southern, you know, even though I guess Springsteen's a Jersey guy, but it's like a ubiquitous phenomenon where someone raised in poverty or just above poverty experiences and is a receptacle for all the bitterness of uh, parents who have been failed by the mythos of bootstrap mentality, who have been told that the United States and the capitalist system is one of promise, where you'll get a job and then all they are is tired and, and haggard and underserved, and then they become disillusioned with that, with, with the gilded exterior of American exceptionalism with the sort of meritocracy of religious institutions where if you just do good and pray hard enough, then you'll be blessed with prosperity and then people fall through the cracks and become super angry and right. end up living with, you know, hundreds of years of, screwed up American ideology on, on their backs. Like, but then he, that's such a real and deep thing. Well, and also like tying it to the Bible, it also says like, this is bigger than America. This is like so ingrained in humanity. This like thing that you get from your parents where uh, they hand down all of this stuff onto you before you even realize it. You have all this baggage that you didn't ask for. Then you have to carry this for the rest of your life. Like, to me, yeah. like part of the power of that song too is being a listener of Springsteen, who's always looked at Bruce Springsteen in sort of an unhealthy way. I have to say for myself that I've always looked at Bruce Springsteen in a way as like a surrogate father figure, or as a guy who's going to mm -hmm. give me the father-son talks that I have not gotten in my real life, because there is this strain in his on his records of uh, of father songs you know he writes a lot about his dad certainly you know on the record after this you have independence day which is a landmark song for him and then there's used cars on nebraska and i mean it's 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 really beautiful how the father songs get softer and more empathetic as he gets older like mm -hmm. you get to like tunnel of love there's the song walk, walk like a man 
where he's writing about seeing his dad at his wedding and how uh, you know he has all these positive memories. You know, he, he's remembering the good stuff about his dad at that point. And of course, by that point, he was around forty years old and maybe had a little bit more perspective on his childhood. But on Darkness on the Edge of Town, he did not have that perspective yet. There was a lot of anger towards his dad that comes out in that song. And but like you say, by making the biblical illusion there, it kind of is able to make a bigger statement about not just him. Like it doesn't feel like it's purely an autobiographical song. He's able to tie it into the other things he's talking about on this record. And this, I guess the overall theme of trying to transcend the entrenched things about the world that have seemingly been there forever. And yet people have also been trying to get away from them forever. So can you actually get away from it or are we stuck in you know, either your relationship with your parents or with what you were talking about, sort of the structures of American society or uh, any of those things. Uh, but you're right. It's such a, it's kind of a bluesy song, too. It has kind of like a yeah, bluesy to it. Yeah, His vocal style gets really crazy in that one. And then there's like one or two more times throughout the rest of the record where he does that real jazzy um, wail, <laughs> Springsteen like wail, instead of just the emotive shout or like, you know, the contemplative mumble. Uh, do you like all the ways I've characterized versions of Bruce? I like that. <laughs> that is a good that is a good description of the different Bruce voices. I'm going to just chart them out as, like, appearances per record. Contemplative mumble. Well, how would you describe, because, uh, like, it's one of the more extraordinary moments on the record for me that I feel like is maybe overlooked just because there's so many, like, iconic songs on this record, but Something in the Night uh, at the end of that oh, song. I love Something in the Night. Because, you know, the lyrics on this record are amazing, but there's also that moment in Something in the Night where uh, he's just howling, and it's like, it's almost like there's no words to describe the turmoil that the guy in that song is going through. So oh you just gosh, have to wail. And it's so powerful. I used to laugh because the part, the second time, like it happens once at the beginning, but it's not as dramatic. So like, little riff. I don't want to sing it. You know what I mean? They're like, wah! It's crazy sounding. But then when it kicks in the second time, I, the first time I put that CD in my car I was like driving and it spooked me like that noise <laughs> came out of nowhere I was like holy crap that guy is screaming as a person who listens to bands where like there is only screaming that scared me and it's I think because it's not controlled or um, like I don't want to say not purposeful. Obviously, it is purposeful. What What is the word that I'm looking for? It's not restrained. It doesn't seem like there is a technique right. to why he is screaming. Um, it's just almost like listening to a 28-year-old dude cry. Yeah. And it's just heartbreaking because also another thing I like about that is it seems on first pass that the lyrics are not that poetic because it's just like, well, I'm riding down Kingsley, figuring I'll get a drink. Like that sounds like 
talking to one of your coworkers at the mechanic shop just about <laughs> what they're going to do after work. But as it progresses, it's just the inner monologue of this guy who is just speeding along the highway at night and understanding that, like, he's turning the radio up loud so he doesn't have to think about anything so he can just block it all out. And, like, then the last verse is, like, everything we have is crushed into the dirt. You're born with nothing. You're better off having nothing. Right. As soon as you get something, they'll try to take it away. And, like, as much as that sounds that, like, bitter old guy, like, smoking a Pall Mall and telling you how the IRS took all his money and he hates the government, that's so real. It is so real. Well, like, and it has that, I mean, and you were talking earlier about sort of, like, the Midwesternness of, like, Adam raised the cane, and I think that is... Um, I think that this record does take place not strictly in New Jersey because I mean, at the beginning of the song of uh, the beginning of the record on Bad Lines, you know, it's you know, lights out tonight, trouble in the heartland. You know, it, it's not strictly mm, Jersey, yeah. I don't think, on this record. And I think there is something very, you know, as someone who's from the Midwest, and and I guess you would be South, but you're. I mean, Memphis is sort of like Midwestern, too, in a way. Like there is that sort of like Middle American nihilism, you know, that comes into play that he voices in that song that, yeah, you're born with nothing. It's better that way. Cause even if you had something, you, you'd lose it. So like, don't even try to like leave, you know, don't, don't do anything. Cause you'll just fail. And even if you, even if you succeed, you'll fail, you know, I think it's exactly. a, a very ingrained, I think it's a very middle American sort of yeah, like nihilistic point of view that like you're screwed no matter what, even if you do well, <laughs> you know, you're screwed mm-hmm. and you can definitely, What's crazy is that I'm just, like, just because I'm uh, thinking about it now and in the way that you're describing it to me, somehow the record both encapsulates the angst of a young person who feels suffocated by the fact that you live in a small town and you can drive for hours with not another human being in sight, like you said in something tonight. Um, but... It's like an old and young record. It can be sort of applied to either point in life because it's a record that seems like it's in between. It's a liminal space. There's the narrator trying to make the transition between disaffected youth and um, angst towards the structures of society that really give him no option except for to become like his parents and then realizing maybe that he's already there. Or, or you can listen to it as a person realizing that this is the kind of oppression that that Middle Western nihilism imposes upon you. Yeah. You know, it's like very um, fluid. You know, another fascinating thing about this record, and we probably shouldn't get too much into this because this is like a whole other record. <laughs> we could spend a lot of time on that, but you know, there's that record, the promise uh, that was released, you know, as part of that uh, darkness on the edge of town box set. And it's, you know, Oh compo- my gosh. Are you talking about all the other songs? All the other songs the- that he wrote during this time, which are very different from these, almost more in a born to run vein, very poppy, 
uh, have sort of like a 50s, 60s sound. And it, it's just interesting to know that like the way he made this record, it was a very conscious decision on his part that you know I could make this record. Mm-hmm. And he was also writing, I mean, it's like because the night isn't that batch and fire and uh, you know all these other songs that were hits for other people. And he consciously chose, okay, I don't want the hits and I don't want these sort of more songs that are, that people associate with me and, and actually might be a more successful record short term anyway. Um, I just find that fascinating. I'm curious, like for you as a songwriter too, looking at that, because I mean, Springsteen's method at this time was basically just to write like a ton of songs, way more than he would need and choose 10 that he felt like fit together like a puzzle almost or like a movie or a novel. Um, it's just a really interesting thing. I, I mean, it sounds like you've dug into the promise as well and you know those songs pretty well. Yeah, I mean, what's so interesting about that though is that like every songwriter that I look up to and this is something I try to do in my own work, they just write everything. You know, they just amass this catalog of songs by creating for the purpose of creating. You know, not everything has to have a specific intent at the moment it occurs to you. Right. It does not all have to fit into a plan. It seems like from everything that I've ever, you know, read or looked at about this record or, you know, about Springsteen in general. He's an incredibly prolific songwriter and it seems like that's part of the process of finding out what works and what doesn't work and recording all these songs and then choosing in a very intentional manner what to keep. Like, it blew my mind that they were talking about there were 40, like, completed demos and then somewhere around, like, 70 half-completed songs. Yeah. Like, to even half-write 70 songs and then make a 10-track record. Again, you think about like that whole story where Leonard Cohen drafted seventy something verses of Hallelujah before he <laughs> right. called it finished. Like and I don't think that it means sitting there pouring over each small minute word like this crazy story. You know Flaubert who wrote like Madame Bovary, he's just like that uh novelist. Yeah. Um had this whole thing where he would only sometimes write a sentence a day because he believed there was, like, one perfect way to say everything, like, uh, the only just word. And he would sometimes only get a sentence done a day. But the the converse is true for people like Leonard Cohen and, and Springsteen, who just, by statistical probability, have more to work with when they're just keeping themselves creating and reflecting and uh, commenting upon what's happening. Um, I don't know. That's such an insane model. Yeah. Like which, which, which method do you relate more to the, like I'm going to write one sentence a day or I'm going to write 70 songs and I'll figure out what the record is after that. I think like definitely the songs or 70 half songs. Like, yeah. Like, I feel like from all of the interviews and stuff I've ever watched of people like Springsteen or, um, you know, Leonard Cohen or something, like, 
hearing the way that musicians talk about songs when they're like, anything that you think of, just save it. Just save it. It could be something. It could be nothing. Yeah. You know, it's just very open to the the raw data process. And then once you move on to deciding what kind of feel you want the record to have, that's more specific. But it's also another thing you brought up that I think is worth talking about is how this followed up Born to Run, and then he intentionally made it not poppy. And that's a really high-stakes thing to do, but it, it felt very reactionary, very much like, you know, okay, I made you this successful rock record, and now I want you to take me seriously and understand, not as if anybody wasn't taking Bruce Springsteen seriously at this point, but I think that artists who achieve a certain level of success or popularity face the challenge of legitimizing their own music for some reason or legitimizing themselves as artists. I recently watched the, the Lady Gaga documentary and she talks about feeling like needing to legitimize herself as an artist and, and prove that she's smart and, and talented enough. And to me, that's absurd because, you know, you're Lady Gaga. Like, obviously your music is significant, but I think it's easy for people as consumers to just write off popular music as superficial. Yeah. You know, we were just, we were just talking about the mythos that, um, I guess big rock and roll and like party rock breeze. And I think that's the same kind of skepticism that gets applied to bubble gummy pop or, uh, electronic music, you know, and stuff now because it's not dark and brooding and insisting upon its own uh, intellectual worth. We think it doesn't have value. Yeah, I think. And so I think there's something about proving it to your yeah. audience and also proving it to yourself. Being like, okay, I did yeah. this thing, but I I don't want to. I, I can't just do this thing. I I need to be able to do something that reflects who I am now. And if I'm just going to do this thing that is my if I just do this thing again it becomes my shtick and I don't yeah. want to have shtick I mean that seems like every great artist has to face that crossroads at some point and right uh, and but I, I mean the thing about Springsteen is that it seems that all of the ways that he challenges himself musically just end up being a vehicle for the same kind of challenging and thoughtful poetry. Right. And to me, it's almost sad that, or at least I guess now we think of Darkness on the Edge of Town and Born to Run, both as successful records. But thinking about or reading things from how it was received then, it's like uh, Born to Run was this bombastic pop record with a a bunch of hits, and Darkness on the Edge of Town was... uh, brooding and uh, poetic and uh, kind of a little bit more of challenging records. Yeah. And, like, but there's so many... I know this is not a podcast about the record border run, but <laughs> what about that record is not deep and meaningful and thought out and and just intelligent, 
critique of society. Like, I don't know. It's, I wish that the two were more like, or I guess they are now, like just mirrors of each other, like the same thesis executed in two different ways. Well, and I think if you really dig into the catalog, you start to see that they're all connected, you know, that there's themes mm-hmm. that can, that are in all the records. And, and I know Springsteen himself has said that he's writing about the same people on every record. So the people that yeah. were born to run, they're a little bit older on this record by the river. They're starting to get married and they have kids, you know, maybe in Nebraska, they're getting divorced and going through that yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, you're right. There is, there's changes with each record and yet there is, the backbone of his artistry that keeps it, uh, that, uh, kind of connects everything ultimately. Yeah. Um, Julian, this has been so much fun talking to you about this. I feel like we could talk forever. I feel like that's true of all these records. I always feel like we could do three hour podcasts, but then I don't know if listeners would just drive their cars off the road at turn some it, point. Turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm thinking of this being in, like someone's car and then just being like, God, this Julian person has been talking about Adam raised the cane for 15 minutes. Like, <laughs> shut the hell up. See, I don't care so much about Bruce <laughs> I think people will hopefully be pausing and then they're going to put on the song and then they'll come back and listen to it. That's my oh, hope anyway good. for the podcast. Julian, yeah. thank you so much though. It's, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for including me in this project. Yeah, absolutely. Well, take uh, and care. I hope I talk to you again soon. Yeah, absolutely. All right, you too. Bye bye. All right, that was me and Julian. We talked about darkness. We got into it. We got deep. Man, you know, I feel like every episode here could be twice as long as it actually is. And maybe some of you out there feel the same way. Some of you may also feel like, wow. I think 45 minutes or so is long enough to talk about Bruce, to get nerdy about Bruce, but it's just been a blast so far talking about these awesome, awesome albums. Uh, Guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I want to give a shout out to our producer, Derek Madden. Thank you, Derek. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to uh, Josh Copperman, who writes our theme song, or he wrote our theme song. I didn't shout out to him in the first two Bruce episodes. I'm sorry, Josh. We overlooked you, but we will not do that going forward. Thank you for uh, giving us some tunes. Uh, I also want to thank you, the listeners, so much for listening uh, to our podcast, supporting us. This wouldn't be nearly as much fun if uh, I was talking to myself right now. So thank you so much for caring and telling your friends about us and uh, helping us grow our audience. That's That's been really great. All right. That's it for this uh, episode, uh, this installment of 20th Century Boss. Coming up after this, we have part four. We're going to be talking about The River with Patrick Stickles from Titus Andronicus. Man, that was an awesome conversation. So get over to that episode now. It's already up. Uh, I promise you will enjoy it. Uh, Thanks again, guys. We'll uh, talk to you again soon. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.